0: I enjoy getting to see you guys when I come over here, um, like kind of an extended family for me over here. You guys want to hear a story about my kids before we get started? Yeah. Just kind of see, hear the kind of things we're going through at my house. Uh, we were, we, we had church last night and then we came home and we always get carry out. We've been trying to be on a budget, so we're trying to get like eat out once a, once a week. So we always get carry out after church and we got Chinese. We don't really get Chinese that often, so we got Chinese. We were watching the football game together. It's a fun time to be together with the family. Um, you know, used to we would go out to eat with people after our church as a time of fellowship and reaching out to people. But I think kind of we're still kind of recovering from the whole don't go to, to uh, restaurants thing. So a lot of people just kind of go home and eat afterwards. Anyways, we got Chinese. We're eating Chinese. Kids are loving it. It's because it's a new experience, right? It's a different, different kind of food and so uh, Tucker was looking for some more soy sauce or something, and he, he found the fortune cookie in the bottom of the bag. <laughs> and he brings it to mom. He's like, what, is, what in the world is this? And, and uh, Andrew's like, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's called a fortune cookie. It's a, it's a cookie, but inside the cookie there's a little message for you. <laughs> and uh, he's like, whoa. He's like, can we, can we do this? So she opened it up and uh, broke the cookie open and when he saw a little... I mean, he was just amazed that there was a, he could put a message inside of a cookie like that. I was like, "This is insane! What is going on here?" And uh, and he's like, "So read it, read it, read it." And so Andrea, and she, you know, she looks at it and she says, "Well, it says you have the sweetest, best kids in the whole world." <laughs> and uh, this is uh, we're, we're 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 reconsidering our child training because Tucker goes, "How did it know that?" How did it know that, Mom? <laughs> so our kids have no small self-confidence issues. <laughs> we, we may need to work. <laughs> we need to work on some stuff there. Oh man! All right. So uh, praise the Lord. So this uh, we are in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, we're going through our study on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And We're going through it topically, so we're doing four teachings on these two books, and uh, we're covering four different topics. Those topics are prayer, the church, the word, prayer, the church, the word, which is what we're going to study today, and then last, it will be the walls and the gates. Bill taught two weeks ago about prayer, and he looked at the prayers in Nehemiah, and he encouraged us, if you remember, uh, just as a recap, he encouraged us in 12 different principles um, that he, he, he pulled out from those prayers about how we can pray effectively. One of, the, one of the principles that he mentioned was that when we make requests to God, we remind him of his past acts of faithfulness. I thought that was very good. When we pray, we affirm God's grace. With profound admiration, we remember his grace towards us. And then, uh, the one that we really um, we spent a whole home group talking about uh, was the point that Bill made about prayer being an end, in of of itself. You know, just being with God, talking with Him, being with Him, sharing our requests with Him, letting Him shape us in that in that place. We. We really like that. And then last week, Dad taught about building the temple or building the church. And he talked about, remember, one of his points was that God is at work in the earth uh, doing a thing that's bigger than maybe we could even imagine. Maybe, maybe God can act and see his purposes come beyond our ability. Uh, he talked about raising up a king to see the kingdom of God come, something that probably nobody thought was possible, a pagan king. He also talked about the Holy Spirit. Remember that picture of the eagle flapping its wings above the nest? He talks about how the Holy Spirit is stirring us up, stirring up the people of God to be part of that process of building his kingdom in the earth. And then in the end, he talked about, he, he brought us to uh, the, the prophecy, the book of Haggai, and talked about how there are times when you're building the church and it becomes uh, difficult. There are obstacles. There are um, uh, challenges in your life as you're building uh, the temple, but not to become discouraged, not to set that aside and say, no, I'm going to build my own kingdom, but to continue in the work of building the church uh, and not getting discouraged, because you know that the greatest joy, the thing that God has has made you, has formed you to do as be part of a team who is building the church. Amen? That's a quick summary of where we've been. But tonight, we're going to pick up and we're going to talk about Ezra and the Word of God as it relates to this process of building the dwelling place of God. And so what I wanted to do this morning is reemphasize a point, one of those points that Dad made in his teaching, and it's this. God has always been and is now. God is at work in the earth building a dwelling place for him and his people. God has this great desire, and it's one of the reasons we love him. It's one of the reasons he's so amazing. Um, You know, we don't don't create God. (laughs) God is. God exists. He is there before we were here. And our opinion of him or, you know, our imagination of who he is is really irrelevant. He is there. He is a person. He has certain characteristics about him. And one of the things that we know about God through the scripture and our experience of him is deep inside of him, he has this desire. You know, he has a desire inside of him to build this place in the earth, which is his dwelling place. And, and, And it's a place where he comes down and he's with his people. And and they get to behold Him and see Him and interact with Him and worship Him and praise Him and adore Him. And in seeing that, they then go and and go from that place and, and go express that to other people and declare how awesome and beautiful He is. And specifically to declare the goodness and the awesomeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. God has this, this desire, this plan that He is he's, he's bringing about in the earth. And I you know, I don't know where that comes from inside of God, but, but I know it comes from a very, very deep place in his heart, like a place that is unshakable. It's a desire that he has that will never change. And that desire causes him to actually see it to come about in the earth. He doesn't just stand back, but he he, he enters into the earth and takes action to see that come about, even when it seems unlikely to us that, that those things could ever even happen. Um, he comes, he never abandons his character and his desire, and he, and he sees it happen in the earth. Even as we, as, even as mankind, in response to who he is, even as we're full of arrogance and pride and self-centeredness and we reject that invitation to the most holy place to be with him, he continues in showing grace and drawing us back to that place even when we, uh, we trample on his ideas. We see this throughout the Old Testament, okay? You see this throughout the stories, all these stories in the Old Testament, we see God doing this very thing. We see him coming down from heaven into earth and taking action, doing things in the earth to see this dwelling place created uh, in the earth. And, and you should know this uh, in your study of the Old Testament, but all of these stories in some way or another, they actually point to, I mean, they're stories of God acting, but they actually point to or prophesy, about the ultimate act that Jesus or that God and his son uh, does in coming down into the earth, which is when Jesus was sent to die on the cross and be resurrected so that we could dwell with God. Like, that's the culmination. But we have all of these stories in the Old Testament of God doing this, is who he is. Well, this story that we read in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's one of these stories. The story in Ezra and Nehemiah is one of these stories where God comes down and he acts in the earth so he can create his dwelling place in the earth. So let's kind of let's kind of walk through this again. I always get kind of jumbled in my head the whole story of Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, all of these other nations. So let me let's walk through it uh, in preparation to talk about Ezra uh, this morning. Okay, right? You have Israel, the chosen people of God, right? And God has created them as a nation, but. They've turned their backs on God, right? They, you know, through their history, they reject him. They seek after things that they shouldn't. And so what we, where, where we're at right now uh, is this period where God allows King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, to come and, and take Israel captive. And one of the things that we know about the Babylonians and the Assyrians, well, these were large empires, and they would go and they would capture many nations, uh, not just Israel, but they captured other nations. They were creating an empire. One of the things, one of their, I don't know, I don't, I'm not a military guy, but one of their manners of warfare is that when they would uh, capture a, a nation, a people group, they wouldn't just capture them, uh, but they would take them and they would uproot them from their geographical location, their homeland, the place where they were comfortable, their holler, if you, if you, in Kentucky words, they'd take them out of their holler and they would transport them to a, vastly different location. And here you see Israel gets moved over to Babylon. And the reason they did that, there was a theory behind this, is that they wanted to remove them from their homeland where they were comfortable, where they understood their ways of life, where they might know the watering well that they would go to on a weekly basis. They would pull them out so that they would lose their identity. And, and, And the reason was is they didn't want them to maintain this national identity where one day they might rise up again and try to to remove themselves from the rulership of Babylon. Uh, and so that's what they do, and they would remove these nations, and the idea was to just grind out, to just destroy every sense of identity in those people. And this would include things like their religion, what they believed about God, their laws, their political forms, all the way down to things like their feast and their celebrations. They wanted to eradicate that from that nation, right? Right? So that's what happens to Israel, and in fact, Israel, as we read, Israel goes and lives in Babylon for 70 years. And over those 70 years, what starts to happen is the ways of God, the cultural things that God has deposited in them that reflect him, it gets processed out of them. And they begin to forget. They begin to forget their own ways, but they also begin to forget who God is. Uh, and the things that they know are true about their good God. Interesting to think about this. This is just something I was thinking about when I was reading about this, right? So this is something that Babylon does, right? The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he's got this idea because he wants to build his great country. So he's got this means of warfare to destroy their identity. And it happens as he moves you know, nations out. But I always try to think about what's going on in the spirit here. You know, there are spiritual enemies uh, that are opposing the kingdom of God. And and yeah, Babylon is working against the nation of Israel, but you kind of can see in the background that, that what's really going on here is the spiritual enemies of God this, which have been opposed to him forever. They're taking in this opportunity and their real goal here is that the evidence of God, the ways of God, uh, the, the, the things that God has deposited in the earth about himself, they, would have, they want to vanquish that off the face of the earth so no one, can know who God is. And no one can be reconciled with God and, and seeing those things about who He is. And this is a really, really an attempt by the spiritual enemies of God to destroy the evidence of God in the earth. That's what's going on here. Because they know it's there in the people of Israel. Think about this in our culture today. The spiritual enemies of God are doing the same thing today. They're trying to eradicate all of the knowledge of God Specifically the, the character that he has deposited in his people that are in the earth. The, the spiritual enemies of God are trying to take the cultures of the world and, and, and superimpose them on the people of God so that we forget who he is. The enemy wants to destroy the dwelling place of God in the earth. All right, so <clears throat> 70 years of captivity, right? There's the story. We jump back into the story. Uh, the Israelites are in uh, in in uh, Babylon for seventy years, and we see at the beginning of Ezra. So we can in, in the book of Ezra, you see at the beginning there that God raises up the Persians, this Persian army led by Cyrus, and 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 Cyrus comes with his army and he overtakes the Babylonians and he overtakes uh, the captors of Israel. And the first thing that Cyrus does within a year uh, of taking over Babylon, he For some reason, because the prayers of God's people, for some reason, God bends his heart. And he kind of out of the blue. This is what we talked about last week. God moving in the earth. Cyrus, out of the blue, makes this edict and says, listen, I want to send the people of Israel back to Jerusalem to build their temple. In a dark, hopeless moment, God grabs hold of a man and he makes it possible because of his desire for the temple to be rebuilt Again, 70 years they had been dwelling in Babylon and God makes a way for them to return. Listen to this. This is kind of cool. We often talk about Old Testament prophecies that we read in any of the prophetic books like the Psalms or Isaiah or any of those. And we talk about how they speak about Jesus, how he's going to come in the future. Well, the Old Testament is full of all kinds of prophecies, even prophecies about the nation of Israel itself. Even prophecies about this 70 years, even prophecies about this man Cyrus. Listen to these prophecies that are over approximately 200 years prior to the time of Ezra. These come from Jeremiah and Isaiah. I'm just going to read a couple for you. Listen to this. This is amazing. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. It's from Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. Again, in Jeremiah 29, you know some of these verses here, but I'll give you the context here. It's Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and to give you a hope. It's prophesying 70 years. Isaiah forty four twenty eight. Listen to what Isaiah says here. Who says of Cyrus? He is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Wow, that's pretty awesome. God is declaring the good things that he's going to do for his people before they happen. All right, so as we covered last week, as we were in the book of Ezra, we talked about Cyrus and how he gathered up this group of Israelites and said, listen, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to rebuild the temple. Well, they go back. There's two guys that kind of lead them at the beginning of Ezra, uh, of Ezra. You read about this. One was Zerubbabel, and he was kind of like the, they call him a prince, but he was kind of like the, the political leader uh, for Israel. He was actually uh, in the line of David. So you have Zerubbabel. And then you have another guy named uh, Joshua, or Joshua. And he was the priest that went with him. Okay? And he, he traced his lineage back to um, Aaron. And they went and they led the people. And we read about this. It took them a long time, like 50 years, but they were able to rebuild the temple. And after they rebuild the temple, kind of at the end of chapter six, you see that they celebrate with this great Passover celebration as they have rebuilt uh, the temple. So we're going to pick up in Ezra chapter seven, and we're going to talk about Ezra and his role in bringing the word of God back to Jerusalem as they're rebuilding God's holy city, Zion. So most likely Ezra was the one that wrote both of these books. We read at the beginning of chapter 7 that Ezra was a priest and that Ezra was a scribe. Ezra could trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron. Aaron and Moses, right? He was the original priest. Ezra was a great, 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 great grandson of Aaron. He was born into captivity in Babylon, okay? So he had never been to Jerusalem. He'd never seen the temple. But we know that he was a scribe. He was somebody, it says, who was skilled in the law of Moses. So when we talk about the law of Moses, we're talking about the Torah. And this is what, at the time, the Jewish people considered to be the word of God or to be the scripture. He was skilled in that. There's some evidence, uh, the Jewish tradition, that says that he had the entire Torah memorized. Ezra possibly had the entire Torah memorized. So when he went back to Jerusalem, he had the entire Torah deposited inside of him to share with the people of God. We also see that there's about six different times in Ezra where it says the hand of God was on Ezra. See, God had put his hand on him. He was shaping him. He was involved intimately in Ezra's life to make him into a man who could go and bring the word of God back to Jerusalem. We also know that Ezra had favor in the sight of King Artaxerxes, the king over Babylon at this time. His name was Artaxerxes. He liked Ezra. Well, Artaxerxes learned that Ezra had something in his heart, and it's something that God had placed in Ezra's heart. And if you read in chapter 7, verse 10, you can see what it is. It says that Ezra set it in his heart to do three things, to study the Scripture, to do the Scripture, and to teach the Scripture to the people of Israel. So when Artaxerxes learned that this is what Ezra wanted to do, he made it happen. So he said, Ezra, I'm going to send you back with my full authority to go to Israel and to teach the word of God to the people there that have built the temple. And he sent with Ezra a lot of money. He sent with him some of the vessels that had originally been in the temple. You see, when they originally sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, they took out a lot of the things that were in the temple that God had had his people put in the temple. So he sent some of those things back, too. Also, we see that on the way back, Ezra stops in a small town, sends some guys to this small town, and he says, Listen, we need to bring some priests with us back to Jerusalem so they can minister into the temple. And so they go. You may note here, that there is 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 a significant, a very similar feeling to what's going on here as to when God originally drew the people out of Egypt, right? Back then you had the people of Israel that were stuck in captivity to another nation, which was Egypt. God set them free. And remember, think about Exodus. What does God do as he sets them free? The first thing that he does is he gives Moses the law. Right? Moses goes up on the mountain, God gives him the law. The second thing is he gives him instructions to build a tabernacle or a temple, a place for the people to meet with God. And then he consecrates priests to minister in that temple, and he does like the golden lamp stand. I always get Narnia and the, and the Bible mixed up here at this point, but there's the golden lamp stand and the, uh, and the Ark of the Covenant and all those things uh, that he puts in there so that It can be a dwelling place for his presence among his people. So you see the same thing going on here. A little bit different order, but first they go, they rebuild the temple. And then God sends Ezra to bring the word back to the temple. And he sends with him the priests uh, and those vessels to reinstitute this dwelling place of God in his city, his holy city, Jerusalem, Zion. So the question that I want to ask this morning... Uh, as we're studying Ezra and we're studying his bringing the word, the law, back into Jerusalem, is why is it so important? Why why did God raise up a man to reinstitute the law or his word in Jerusalem? Why did that need to happen? Why is the law so important? Well, what I want to tell you this morning is that the law at its core, at its base, what is the law? The law is a revelation from God. It's not something that we find in the earth, but the law is a revelation from God of his ways. And it's specifically a revelation of how we, as people, can love God and love one another. That's really what the law is all about. Loving God and loving one another. In Matthew twenty-two 36, you'll know this. There's a guy comes up to Jesus and he says, "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he follows it up with this. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets summed up in this. Love your neighbor and love your God. Again, in Romans thirteen eight and 9, it says... Owe oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall, shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, the word of God is essentially God's instructions, his revelations from heaven on how we are to walk in love with one another, and in love with Him. We live in a world that has lost the understanding, has lost the capacity to walk in love with God and one another. And the Word of God is this great beacon of light that God has sent into the earth to instruct us on what it means to really be a people who know how to love and care. Man, the law has been confused a lot by a lot of people. But this is what it is about, the heart of God, for us to love one another. And Israel really needed this light. Israel really needed this beacon at this point because they had been in captivity in Babylon, right? And all the ways of God and of loving one another, all of that stuff that he had already communicated to them, they'd lost it. It had been processed out of them by the Babylonians, and they had taken on this pagan, this otherworldly way of living life that was full of arrogance, that was full of pride, that was full of self-centeredness, that was full of worship of things other than God. And it had begun to dominate the way that they think, the way that they felt, the way that they acted. This is a really fundamental point about the way that we understand the world. And so I want to underline this for you. In the earth, there is a worldly way of life. There is a worldly understanding of life. And it all revolves around me. And it's full of pride. It's full of arrogance. It's full of self-centeredness. Every little element of the way that the world sees life. Ultimately, its foundations rest in that. And all across the earth, where mankind does not have the Word of God to transform the way that they live, they walk in that spirit of self sitterness and pride. That's what dominates the earth. But the Word of God is a revelation that comes... And it transforms people. It gives light. It gives a new way of living that is over and apart from that worldly way of looking at things. All right? Listen, I think this is really relevant for us today as we look at what's going on here in in Jerusalem. Think about our culture. Think about America. Think about the ways in which, you know, maybe 50 years ago, 70 years ago, just our daily life here was... It was characterized by biblical teachings. There were things that we all kind of agreed on that came from the Word of God about how to walk in love with one another, how to understand with God. It was common. But think about how fast that changes has been changing. There's a spirit that is, that is moving across our nation that is eradicating those things that we used to all kind of hold in common together. It's destroying those ways those characteristics. It's destroying those celebrations. It's destroying those feasts. It's destroying those things that we know about God in our culture today. And just like Israel needed the Word of God to come and shape them as they were going to be rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple, I want you to understand that you, that we are desperate for the Word of God to come so that we can reshape we can reorient the way that we and our culture here in the U.S. thinks about walking in love with one another and walking in love with God. We need the Word of God because this truth, this understanding of God's ways, it can't be discovered, it can't be apprehended by like academic study or, or in our own strength. It's something that must be revealed to us, that changes us, from head to toe. It's a revelation. It can only become, come from the revelation of the Word of God. All right, so this is interesting. Ezra arrives in Jerusalem with the Word of God. And one of the first things that we see is there in chapter 9. You look at the beginning of chapter 9. These, uh, these uh, important people there come up to him. That's what they say. Hey, Ezra, the people of Israel and the priests... And the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. I'm getting good at that. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, And the faithlessness of the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. That was kind of interesting. Like the worst guys at this were the guys that were kind of the leaders of Israel. Okay, so Ezra hears this about the intermarriage going on. And he knows because he's got the word of God inside of him. Because he does the word of God. Because he wants to teach the word of God. He knows that that is a violation of the law of God to to intermarry with these other countries. And you see this uh, down in verse 11. It says, Ezra is crying out to God and it says, which you commanded by your servants, the prophet, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands. And their abominations have filled it from one end to the other with uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity. That you may be strong and eat good in the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. So Ezra responds, you know, like when he shows up and they're all intermarrying with the other cultures, he responds by doing this. You can read about it. He tears his clothes and he cries out to God. He says, God, we're violating your law. We're disobeying your law. Because Ezra's a man who knows the law, does the law, teaches the law. He cries out to the Lord and everyone around him. When they see this man who knows the law, loves the law, they, they, they move towards him. And they cry out and they say, God, we are disobeying your law. And he actually leads them into a repentance for marrying these other into these other nations. And they make a covenant with God and they say, God, we're not going to do that anymore. In fact, we're going to take these wives and these husbands that we've taken and we're going to set them aside. We're going to return them and we're going to return to your way of doing things. We're going to return to the godly biblical way of living in this uh, city. So as we find out the people of Israel, they're walking in dis- disobedience and they, it's, it's ironic. They've just been set free from slavery to another country and God lets them go down to Jerusalem and the first thing that they do is they intermarry and in a sense align themselves with other nations that are full of abominations and full of sin, and full of hatred and self-centeredness and, they, and, they're, and they're walking in ways that are going to bring that way of life back into Jerusalem. But a man of God, full of the word of God comes in and says no. The Word of God has has taught us not to live in this way. And one of the things that, that we see that the Word of God has the power to do, it is, it has the power to instruct us when we're not walking in the way of love, when we're walking in a way that would, in fact, destroy us and hurt us and hurt one another. It instructs us that we're not doing that. But then also the Word of God, it can ignite in us a desire for repentance and lead us. To repentance, That is to turn away from that. And then the word of God also can instruct us in love and in wisdom and how we ought to live. Right? So it tells us how not to live. It ignites in our conscience and our soul and our spirit a desire to turn from that way. And then it shows us the path to walk on, which is godly and good. Man, that's powerful. That's awesome with the word of God. Ezra brings it back to Jerusalem. And he draws the people back into a good, righteous, holy, wise way of living. So that's the, that's the powerful word of God. What I want to do is I want to take a look at some of the keys that made Ezra the man that he was, that, w- that was able to come and impart the powerful word of God to the people of Israel here. And we already read it, but I want to read it again. And it's a keystone verse for the teaching this morning. It's that Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Okay, so here's the three I want to look at. To study the Word of God, to do the Word of God, and to teach the Word of God. Study the Word of God. We need to be a people who study, who have committed ourselves to study the Word of God. It means we need to read the Word of God. We need to memorize it. We need to meditate upon it. We need to apply our minds to the Word of God so that we can understand what the Word of God is telling us. Given the culture that we live in today, I think this is very, very important we need to understand the way that we think has in large part, the way that we think, the way that we understand life, the ideas that we have in our head have been shaped. You may think that you are a strong man of God or a strong woman of God, but you need to understand that you live in the midst of a culture that imparts ideas and a lot of, there are a lot of things in your head that are contrary to the word of God. And we need the Word of God to come and refashion the way that we think about life. I saw an interesting example of this. I liked it. I don't know if it's the best example you can come up with, but I saw an interesting example of this this week. There's a lady that I follow on Twitter. <clears throat> She's from Israel. And she was talking, about, she had a little tweet on um, the ways in which our, <clears throat> our cultural philosophical kind of presuppositions or the way that our culture thinks affects us, both in the way that we act and what we do and and the way that we even talk, how it affects us, maybe even when we don't know that it affects us. And so she was commenting on American culture, and she, she, she pulled out this phrase. Have you ever used, let me ask you this, have you ever used the phrase, pay attention to me? You ever use that phrase, like to your kids or maybe to someone that you love, or maybe to a congregation that you're teaching to, pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. That's an interesting phrase when you think about it. What are some of the things that are very fundamental about American society? We pay for a lot of things, right? We're a capitalistic society. We're transactional. We're consumer-oriented. So when you say pay attention to me, you're really revealing a lot about the way that you think about the world. And she said, this is so fascinating to me. She said, they have the same phrase in Israel, in Hebrew. But the phrase is translated like this Give me your heart. Is that kind of interesting? Much more relational. Now, listen, I love capitalism. I mean, I'm excited about Christmas. I cannot wait for all those. Yeah. No. I'm not preaching against <laughs> I'm not preaching against capitalism. But what I'm trying to point out to is like there are ways that our culture affects us that we're walking in that we don't even know that we are. It's shaped the way that we think about the world. And it's not all good. So we need to be meditating on the Word of God. We need to be daily eating and immersing ourselves in the Word of God so that we can be transformed from people that think about things in a worldly way. And I took a really, that was a really, really low-key thing. There are a lot of ways that you think that are anti-God. And we need to immerse ourselves in the word of God so that our minds are renewed. Listen to this out of Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's our first point tonight, this morning. We need to be renewing our minds by studying the word of God. Right? The ultimate goal, though, is that he would be dwelling in our midst. huh? Number two, do the word. Do the word. Man, this is so important. Just understanding the word of God is not sufficient for the word of God to come and work in its full power. Just understanding it. That's not the end goal. All right, we we love ideas, don't we? We love learning new things. Think about, I mean, we live in an age where the transfer of information, the ability to transfer and communicate information is beyond the means that it's ever been before. Think about um, the Internet. Think about 24-7 news, the amount of ideas and unique and new things. When we can know about the cultures of all the nations of the world. You can go online you can find out uh, something new and interesting whenever you want. You know, you can, you know, you can learn one thing and then in five minutes later you've learned ten other things and you've already forgot the first thing that you learned. For somebody like me, I can only actually hold three things in my head at once. So that gets like, pretty difficult. Like the, by the fourth thing, I've already forgot the first thing. You know, you, you, you can be captivated by the next thing that comes on your feet. And you can think, oh, man, what a cool idea. That's so amazing. And you can be caught up in it. And there's like this emotional kind of like, man, I've learned something new. It's really, really prevalent in religious or like Christian communities, right? I mean, you can go to church and hear some great ideas um, by Bill Hughes. And you can be like, oh, man, that's amazing. And you get the sense of like, oh, man, I've been, I've been transformed. I got a new idea in my head. Next morning, you can... Uh, you can go read your Christian book that you're reading and then there's another idea in that book. and You're like, oh man, this is amazing. And then on Monday morning, you're on your way to work. You're listening to your favorite Christian podcast and there's another idea that's awesome and it's transforming your life. And then you can go you know, with your buddies to the coffee shop and you can share all those ideas with them. You can talk about it and you can be so amped up. Man, I, like, I'm such a spiritual person. I'm so close to God right now. But ultimately, all that is Or a bunch of ideas swirling around in your head. With, you know, one popping out the next day. Another one popping in. Uh, And there's this sense of, like, man, I'm, you know, I'm... I really get the scripture. I really get the truth. But that's not reality. (laughs) See, the way the Word of God works is that when it comes into us, we apply it to our lives. We slow down and we let those things that we've been taught begin to manifest itself in our character. We take it on. We execute it. We allow it to shape us, shape our spirits and our hearts. And this requires that you slow down and that you discipline yourself and you you allow the Word to come and shape you. And it's when, when the Word of God begins take hold in your life that you really begin to understand it. See, you don't really understand it until you're living it. That's, that's where the Word of God is totally different from something you can learn in a secular textbook or something like that. It's not just an idea. It's something that takes hold in your spirit and your soul. In Matthew 22, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and this is where he gets on to them because they're hypocrites. They know everything that's in the law. And they can tell other people everything that's in the law. But they're not doing it themselves. They're not doing it. They're not walking in the truth of the law. 2 Timothy 3.7 is talking about these evil men. And it says, these men who are ever learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. They're learning all these new things, but they're never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Think of the things that Jesus taught, like the important things that he taught his disciples. Being meek, being poor of spirit, being the servant of all. Think about those ideas. Can you really understand those ideas if you're not doing those? Can you talk to people about how great it is to be meek without actually being a meek person? Can you, can you really explain servanthood if you haven't been a servant to other people? Just, the, just a note about our home groups and our, to our home group leaders. This is what we do in home group, right? This is where we take what's been taught on Sunday and we go to our home groups. And this is where the work of letting the word of God take hold in us. And in our group, we slow things down. And sometimes we don't jump on to the next idea until we as a group have really learned to put into practice the word of God into our lives. Amen? All right. Do the word of God. Next, number three, teach the word of God. God also put it in Ezra's heart to teach the word of God. You know, the word that he had studied, the word that he had done, put it on Ezra's heart to teach the word of God to other people. This is obviously critical, right, for the word of God to be uh, imparted to other people so they can experience relationship and the joy of knowing God and walking in his ways. But I think when we think about teaching the word of God, you know, the first thing that might come to your mind is what I'm doing right here. Uh, standing in front of people, uh, sharing information, sharing information, other people about the Word of God, but the bulk, the majority of the teaching of the Word of God in our church, in our community, in our family, it goes on in a much quieter atmosphere. I'd say the most of the teaching of the Word of God happens in a one-on-one relational interaction where people in our church who are Mature, who are proven, who've seen the fruit of the Word of God in their lives, they pass it on to other people in their daily lives. Whether it's working a project together, whether it's uh, educating our kids together, whether it's eating a meal together, uh, whether it's celebrating a birthday together, whether it's walking through life with somebody who's just lost a job or, or interacting with somebody that's just been sick. In our community, as the people of God, we teach the word as we share with one another in those moments. And as we open our lives up to one another, and as we open our lives to share, and as we open our lives to receive, the word of God is teached, it's taught in those situations. So my, my challenge to you, or my question this morning, is you think about your life. You think about the conversation of your life, the things that you say, the things that you impart to other people as you're just living life with them. What are you sharing with other people? Are you sharing your best thoughts on life? Are you sharing things that you've heard on the internet, things that you've heard on TV, things that you've heard on podcasts? Or are you sharing... Are you teaching the word, of the word of God to other people? When people think about the sum of what you communicate as you walk in daily life with other people, are you sharing the word of God? 1 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word. Be ready to teach in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching need to be teaching the Word of God. You need to be teaching the Word of God. Because when you teach the Word of God, it actually goes another step deeper. After you've learned it, after you've done it, now you teach it. And I don't know what it is about teaching the Word of God. Maybe it's the fact that you have to organize it and put it together in a way that you can you can share it to somebody else that makes sense. Or sometimes, to me, it's actually the act of watching somebody else understand an idea for the first time and apply it to their life and say the same thing in their words, that it takes me to a deeper place of understanding the Word of God. It brings me to a place of understanding the Word of God in a way that I never understood it before. As you teach the Word of God, as we share that in our communities together, we're developing the culture the truth, and the ways of God in our community so that it can be a dwelling place where God can come and live and we can love others and love Him together. Awesome. All right, so church, every one of us, we need to be studying the Word of God, doing the Word of God, teaching the Word of God. That's literally the first time I've ever done that. My dad does that all the time. Just did it. Tell him next time you see him. Matt just did the responsive question in his teaching. We're pretty much done. But there's one other awesome thing, and I left it for the end because it's awesome. If you were a good student this week, you you notice that Ezra is talked about in the book of Ezra, but he's also talked about in Nehemiah. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 8, we see Ezra. Turn up again in the story. And let me give you a quick, quick overview. At the beginning of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is actually also sent by King Artaxerxes to go to Jerusalem from Babylon. And his, his responsibility is to build the wall. Okay, the wall had broken down. So he sends Nehemiah to go rebuild the wall. Nehemiah goes and man, it's awesome stories of guys with a spear in one hand, a shovel in the other, and they rebuild the wall. Okay, so they build the wall back up. Well, after they rebuild the wall, Temples there, walls built up. All the people of Israel, this is all of them, they assemble together at this place called the Water Gate, one of the gates that they built. They all assemble there. And you know what they want to do when they get together and they're all together as the people of God? They say, bring us Ezra. And Ezra, bring the word of God. And Ezra comes and he reads the word of God in their midst. And this is no... This is no five-minute Bible time. It says he reads from early in the morning to mid-afternoon. They read. And the response of the people is that they fall on their knees. They raise their hands up. They bow their heads, and they praise God. When the Word of God is brought to the center of their assembly and of their worship, it draws the people up into this adoration of who God is, and they worship Him. If you keep reading, it results in them restoring some of the feasts and the celebrations that God had called them to. And then it also leads them into this like congregational confession of sins and, and commitment and covenant to be holy to the Lord again. And it's also interesting, that at first they actually start weeping, but the priests are like, no, 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 this is a holy time. This is a time to rejoice and praise God for who he is. So my last point about the word of God is is the most awesome thing to me about the Word of God. The Word of God is a revelation. And the deepest part about the revelation of the Word of God is the Word of God reveals God himself to us. And in a specific way, when we come together and we read it together as the people of God, there's a revelation of who he is, his very character, his very presence, his very essence is communicated by the Word of God. And it causes us to see who He is and causes us to bow our knees and honor and worship and praise for who He is. That's the Word of God. That's what it can do. I have a a quote or a phrase that I love from a guy named St. Augustine, and it's this. For now, treat the Scriptures as the face of God melt in its presence. You see, for us, we are so eager to see the face of God. And God has given us His Word. And it's a revelation of who He is, of His very face. So when we press in to study, to do and to teach the Word of God, and we read it together, his very presence comes down and we can be with him and worship him and adore him and praise him. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, You want to close in worship? Could we close in a a, a worship song? And what I want to do is, um, you know, they read the scripture. I want to read some scripture just as we prepare for worship and then um, we'll close in a song. So you can um, stand on up. And stand with me as I read. I'm going to read from Psalms 119, a section of Scripture that I love. And it actually talks about the Word of God. All right, we'll start at the beginning. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules, and I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes.